Welcome to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. Today, director Gavin Hood speaks about his new film, Official Secrets, with Landmark Theatre's CEO, Ted Mundorf. This conversation was recorded at the Landmark in Los Angeles on the film's opening night. Gavin Hood first came to prominence in the United States um, as a writer and a director on a small little film that happened to win the Academy Award called Satsi, a South African film. It's not that long. Uh, it feels like yesterday. Um, so after that, he, he followed with a, another film that um, I quite enjoyed um, uh, called Rendition, if you guys remember that. And then in 2016, he gave us a gift, meaning Landmark Theaters, and he gave us Eye in the Sky. And Eye in the Sky was one of our most popular films of that year. So um, it's my pleasure to introduce Mr. Gavin Hood. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for staying. I hope that's a good sign. <laughs> so, right. yep. so. Um, we're on a little bit of a schedule, a little tight schedule, so we'll, we'll try to get through this and get, to, um, some, get some questions from me, and then uh, if we have a few minutes, then we'll open up to the audience as well. So besides the book, um, what other sources did you use to create the I mean, the story exists, but to yeah, you know, no, dramatize the question. story and to you know, get it on film? Well, um, when I came on board, the, the film had been in development in a certain version before I came and um, and based on the book and I'll jump straight to it. The difficulty was when Jed called me, producer of Eye in the Sky, he was taking over this project because the feeling from the real people was that the studio behind the book was taking too many liberties with the truth and trying to sensationalize it. And Because the truth is this film the story doesn't follow, follow a conventional narrative path. There isn't the one hero who is wronged, who sets about to set the world right, and in the end makes a big speech or defeats the bad person and triumphs. There's this memo that lands on a woman's desk, and she struggles with what to do, and then that same memo lands on a journalist's desk, and he struggles with what to do, and eventually the memo and the lady all land in a lawyer's office, and a whole new bunch of characters start doing it. So that's normally not a good recipe for a dramatic arc in conventional storytelling terms, right? So um, there had been attempts to blend characters, give Martin more, and of course that kind of backfired because Martin got the script and Catherine got the script and said, that's not what happened. So it kind of stopped. So I say that cautiously because I understand where the impulse comes from completely. I understand that this is not a conventional narrative. And for some people, that may not be good. But what Jed called me up, he said, look, Gav, I've got this project. I'm obsessed with this idea of this young lady, Catherine Gunn. Have you ever heard of her? And you go, nope. And he said, well, just Google her and call me back. So I did. I Googled Catherine. I said, wow, why don't I know the story? He said, I said, I'd I'm interested. He gave me this background, and he said, come to England and meet her. So the sources became, for me, not just what had already been done, which, of course, helped me enormously because it's put certain, this works, this doesn't work. Sure. And you're not starting from zero. So, um, but then I went and I spent five days with Catherine Gunn, um, talked to her five, six hours a day. 
then I went and saw Martin and did the same thing with all the journalists and with Ben Emerson, the lawyer. And then I had a ton of my own research directly from the sources. And I knew the truth. And I thought, well, that's what we're going to do. And somehow we have to make this drama work with these beats, even though there's no damn great court case in the end. The whole damn thing is built and it doesn't happen. How are we going to make that dramatic? But that's what happened. Is the story worth telling? And I felt it was. And so I went away. It took me about a year. Um, the bloody thing wouldn't get into shape. Um, and that's how it happened. Well, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So ethics, morality, conscience, mm. certainly are part of this movie. Mm. Certainly were part of Eye in the Sky. Yeah. And rendition. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What's attract I mean, to you, what's what why is that attractive? Why am I so full movie? of angst? <laughs> <laughs> um I uh, it's always strange to, uh, you don't really know what it is in yourself that motivates you to be drawn to certain things. We're all drawn to certain things. I suppose we have to go see our shrinks and figure out why. Well, in my journey with my shrinks, it's I grew up, I suppose, in an orth under an authoritarian regime in apartheid South Africa in the 70s and 80s. And by the time it got to the 80s and I was at law school trying to figure it all out, um, things were really bad. The state of emergency had been introduced you know, habeas corpus, the idea of entitlement to a trial was just gone. The emergency regulations justified indefinite detention without trial, without the right of access to a lawyer if you were accused of in any way being a danger to the state. So I know what it's like to live under an authoritarian regime. And I suppose in my own, a friend of mine when I was drafted at 17 was killed in Angola. I don't know, you dig through all this shit and at some point I got very angry as a young person and very confused and you have a political awakening and somehow I'm drawn to the idea that, um, I, I, here's a better way of putting it. When I was at law school, we studied the American Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all of the things that we were hoping to have. And so for me, a film like this, this might sound odd, is actually patriotic. Because what I'm drawn to, and I am an American citizen now, and my children are born here, what makes this country special and Western democracy special is the idea that there are certain inalienable rights and that we are governed by the rule of law and that there are checks and balances to power. And when power abuses itself, it's important that we check it. So perhaps I feel strongly about that because of growing up in a place where what perhaps many Americans take for granted, the idea that you could be detained tomorrow and disappear is almost inconceivable. But in authoritarian states, that happens. Well, I'm not quite going completely, completely there, but speaking of regimes, the, the, <laughs> the uh, regime of Richard, Richard Nixon um, was during the period of time of the Pentagon Papers was yeah. very similar the government's reaction is very similar, if not the same, yeah. except there probably wasn't an assassination attempt yeah. uh, as there was on... Um, um, well, Foote was assassinated in South Africa, but sorry, okay. go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So that, yeah. okay. Yeah. But uh, is Tony Blair's government, because yes. all they seem to want to do is not, you know, find the truth or admit the truth, yeah. um, and all they want to do is put someone on trial and ruin their lives. Yeah. And and so, in, in which also brings me to law, which is... The laws of sedition uh, uh, are certainly different in England and Britain um, than they are here. Mm -hmm. um, most people don't understand them here, but I, I, I actually have spent um, 
time on the Pentagon Papers, okay. so that's why I, I'm interested. And our laws were written in 1918, wow. where Britons it came in in the movie were like... Well, it's the, the Official Secrets Act in the movie is the Official Secrets Act of 1989, but the only reason it's 1989, because it was updated from, you know, sure. almost 100 years before, only because under the previous act, you could bring a defense to being charged with breaching an Official Secrets Act by saying that it is deeply in the public interest, the public interest defense, for the public to know about what I exposed. And Thatcher shut that down after that defense was successful in a case involving an Argentinian ship called the Belgrano, where they had torpedoed that ship, said that it was attacking, and it turned out when somebody leaked it that it was leaving the, the, the war. But I'm in the weeds now. So in Official Secrets Act in, in, in Britain, the, the, there was no defense. So that's and, why it was written that ben, way. Ben tries to say, wait a minute, maybe there is. Right. We've never tested this idea of the idea of the defense of necessity. And shall I bore you with quickly what the defense of necessity is or no? No, go. No, okay. So, so, so the lawyers in the room will, will forgive me if I do it rather briefly and get and it wrong. I'm surprised, by the way, that you've admitted three times during this interview that, uh, that you were a lawyer. I, I, yeah, I was, very briefly. But, um, um, but I'm drawn to those themes, I guess. So law school did something good for me. Um, but basically, the defense of necessity that Ben brings up in the movie is usually used in more mundane ways. In the, in the sort of, here's a boring example. My wife is pregnant, she's about to give birth, I jump in the car, I race to the hospital, I'm exceeding the speed limit, I'm pulled over, I've broken the law, I'm given a ticket, I plead guilty, I've broken the law, but my defense is that it was necessary to break this particular law in order to save life, in order to achieve a much higher purpose. And that means I'm forgiven for breaking the law. So, it's not quite the same as self-defense, defense of necessity, this is, it was necessary to break a law to achieve a higher purpose, usually the saving of life. Not I needed to buy bread or something, they haven't allowed that. Okay, so here Ben says, well, wait a minute, that's never been tried on a defense to the Official Secrets Act. If the war is illegal in international law, perhaps it is necessary to break the law of the Official Secrets Act in order to expose an illegal war and potentially save hundreds of thousands of lives. And the only thing that Catherine and Ben are rather upset about is they never got their day in court to test that idea because the case was dropped. Well, I think it comes out yeah. really well in the movie. I think you really show that. Thanks. So it's very special. Did you did you look at the Ellsberg case, or did you look yes, at and, Banning? Yes, and, and did you look at I've met him, and he's mentioned he's, in the movie he knows Catherine well. He and came he's to doing a Q&A. He's doing yeah, a Q&A in San Francisco. Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. terrific. So. Yeah, no, so he's someone I've been fascinated by, and, um, you know, I mean, you know, obviously films like All the President's Men are kind of iconic sure. and amazing. Um, Anyway, and, and and what about uh, Manning or um, Snowden? Um, yes, well, Chelsea Manning and, and Snowden. What was interesting to me about Catherine is that she only leaked this one memo. Now, I think what Manning leaked was very important, but um, she also dumped a lot of information, yeah. tons. So. I don't judge it either way. All I'm saying is when you look at Catherine, she's almost more ordinary, like us. What drew me to the case was, here's a young person sitting at their job, happens to be a spy, but let's say she worked for Enron or for um, you know, a Wall Street firm or a studio, it doesn't matter. And a memo comes across her desk that suggests that the company that she works for is up to no good, is bending the rules, is fraudulent in their taxes. I don't care what it is. And she goes, you know, because normally she was happy in her job. She's never leaked anything else. She didn't dump a thousand documents on the press. 
she took a personal offense to this particular document and it troubled her. And she saw it on the Friday and she thought about it over the weekend and she, she went, this can't be right. And she decided to leak it. And then she panicked that maybe I shouldn't have. So she's, she's not some superhero. She's just a person who's faced with something she probably wishes she'd never been faced with and it plagued her conscience. And so I thought, well, what would I do if something like that happened to me in my job? Would I have the courage to speak up at the risk of losing my job for good? Because sadly, that's what happens to whistleblowers. We go, yes, you should have done it, but uh, you want to be employed by me? You leak things. So it became very hard for her to get work. And then she has a second moral crisis when she thinks she's going to get away with it. And then they start interrogating all her friends. And when I'm taking these notes and talking to Catherine, and I said, what did that feel like? She said, Gavin, you know, at first I thought I'd get away with it. And then you see them hauling your friends in for interviews and you can't sleep at night. You're ruining the lives of your friends. She's a good person. She's an ordinary person who did something extraordinary. And I guess that makes her an extraordinary person. But what appealed to me, thank you, <laughs> no, for Catherine, for Catherine. She's an ordinary person who did something extraordinary. And she just reminded me that what our parents taught us, just tell the truth. Be decent. Stand up for what's right. It's not, and most of us go, well, my career will suffer, all this, it's hard. Because we have jobs, we have to feed our kids. So she just reminds you of basic dignity and nobility. And she's not perfect. She gets a bit mad at the TV, and then, and then she doesn't want to leak, and then she has these moments and says to her husband, i got to do this. Does she make a living today? It's been hard. Um, she, we did buy her life rights so, and, and her husband's for the movie, and they have bought a, a home, and they used to live in just a small apartment, and they now have a home, so I'm pleased about that. It's in Turkey. She found it very hard in England because every job interview she went to, even though she's exonerated, although she didn't get a day in court, people say, oh, you're Catherine Gunn. We think what you did was amazing, but not really to work here. And that's our weird duality towards whistleblowers, right? We admire them, but we slightly fear them, because what if they say something about us? So it's been hard. So she, she's taught, uh, she, she had, they have a wonderful daughter, they're still together. Yasha really is a very handsome man, more handsome than the actor, actually, and that's hard. Um, he's very quiet, he's very shy, just a man who just wanted to keep his head down and have a life, and his bloody wife goes and leaks this whole memo. Delightful man, they have a lovely daughter, and they live in Turkey in a small town, and she teaches English part-time at a school, and she has a quiet life. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I've been given the high sign, so... Oh, no. so Can we do one question? We're going to do oh. one question, and you, you get to choose. <laughs> I do? Well, he stuck his hand up so quick. Go ahead. Uh, hi, Gavin. I'm uh, a big fan of your work. Thank you. A uh, uh, question I had for you is, even in the time between Eye in the Sky and now, there's a lot that's changed in terms of theatrical distribution and movies going to streaming theaters, all that. And I was just curious what how that's affected your job, both in terms of the projects that you choose, but also, I mean, I'm so glad I got to see this in the theater. And like, Thank we you. need more movies like this in theaters. But it's very hard to get them hard. in theaters and get mm. people aware of Thanks them. Thanks to people to like them. this, by the way. Yeah. Thank you, Landmark. Seriously. And the Arclight. I thank you. Really, thank you. Um, and thank you for doing that. Um, it is hard. It is hard. And so thank you. And now I'll stop saying it. Um, it is hard. Um, these films are hard to finance. We are, the competition for your eyeballs is so fierce that, um, you know, they keep blasting us with more and more action and more and more loud music and more because we watch the, the moving object. So to get an audience to sit quietly and absorb quite a lot of dialogue and think it through and it doesn't have an obvious hero and an obvious villain. We're not programmed by most of our culture to do that anymore. 
We have so much to distract us. So I don't have a good answer for you other than thank you to my producer, Jed Doherty. Thank you to Landmark. Thank you for there being people who want to make these sort of films. And yes, we have to make them at a price, which is pretty tight. We shot this thing in 36 days. I had Ray Fiennes for six days exactly. That's all we had. He shot. That's in some ways why on the beach I get my wide shot, I get a thing, I get these close-ups, and i got to move on. So you're having to do it under, under pressure that you would prefer not to. But at the same time, it focuses your mind. And you just get on with it. And I was very lucky to get the cast we have. Um, the actors were very committed. They walk on set knowing their lines, and all we have to do is focus on the emotional beats. hope that answers your question. <laughs> I'm going to um, tell, say two things. Yeah. Uh, one is to also answer your question. Um, streaming has not ruined the theatrical experience and will not ruin the theatrical experience. So everything you read is bull. Oh, really? That's good to hear. When you say now, that... Now, yeah, the yeah. negative part is yeah. what you hit, you hit the nail on the head. Everybody reads the same articles. So when you're looking for money to make a film, now it's a problem, isn't it? Yes. Because yes, the everyone's is. believing ah. that the theatrical experience is dead. 2018 for Landmark Theaters was the biggest year we ever oh, had. I just want you to know. Wonderful. That. That's, now, the other, deal, the other deal, because we don't you know, charge you that extra $5 for admission for a Q&A, the deal is, and I've made it with all previous audiences, that if you like the film, and I know you did, is you get to tell three people to see the <laughs> film, okay? So thank you very much for coming. Thank you tonight. very, very much, folks. Have a good weekend. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. If you want to hear more conversations with filmmakers about the latest independent, foreign, and documentary films opening at Landmark Theatres, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit our podcast website at landmarktheaters.podbean.com. You can also check out our YouTube channel for videos of Q&As and other exclusive content. See you next time.